Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to the Napoleon Assist and most importantly, Merry Christmas, folks. You join me for the Napoleon Assist Christmas special. Yes, you heard me right, a Christmas special, because who says that we don't do delusions of grandeur on this podcast? I've got a belter for you. Today, we're going to be discussing the most misunderstood person from the Napoleonic era, kind of thinking about, you know, the season of goodwill and perhaps rehabilitating the reputation of some poor, misunderstood individual like I don't know, Napoleon, perhaps. Um, <laughs> no, I'm not going to start trolling you. Don't worry. We're going to move swiftly on. And I've got four of my favourite individuals from the Napoleonic world joining me tonight to talk us through this. Let's start with Alex Mikubaridze. Folks will remember him from a brilliant show that we did a few weeks back on the politics of war. Alex is Professor of History and Ruth Herring Noel Endowed Chair for the curatorship of the James Smith Knoll Collection at Louisiana State University, Shreveport. That must be a hell of a, a mouthful when you have to be introduced at conferences, Alex. He's the, <laughs> That's why you have to keep it sweet and short. <laughs> <laughs> he's the author of the Napoleonic, World, the Napoleonic Wars, A Global History, which is a new reassessment of the global impact of the conflict. And frankly, he and I need to sit down and have a very, very long conversation on that for a separate episode, but we'll get to that another time. I also have Josh Provum with me, the master of adventures in history land, author of Bullock's Grain and Good Madeira, all round nice guy who's joined me for, I don't even know how many episodes it is now, I've lost count, but pretty much every time we want to sit down and talk about a whole load of Napoleonic people, I basically turn to you and say, are you up for it? Uh, great to see you, Josh. We have Beatrice de Graaf, Professor of the History of International Relations at the University of Utrecht and author of Securing Europe After Napoleon and incidentally soon to be my boss. 
Um, and last, but by no means least, Rachel Stark, the Napoleonic commentator who folks on Twitter will know as at Bookish Rachel, who frankly has been doing an absolute belter of an advent calendar on the Napoleonic Marshals, which has, to be honest, been the feat, the, just the highlight of my December. So I've been absolutely loving that, Rachel. Welcome, all of you. How are you all doing? Great, thank you. Yeah, great, thanks. Thank yes. I, okay. uh, I've come straight from the graduation ceremony where we've just finally seen so many students <laughs> done. And of course, once again, I want to reach out to you, Zach, and congratulate on, on uh, finishing a gargantuan task of writing a dissertation. Thank you very much, Alex. For folks who don't realize, I, at the time of recording, hit submit on my PhD thesis um, about half an hour ago, which is the reason that despite the complaints from my assorted guests, this isn't going out on YouTube because I look an absolute state right now. I haven't shaved in about <laughs> a fortnight. Um, and, and Josh is quietly sulking about this because he wore this beautiful concoction of a, a llama kind of Christmas jumper. Um, and now he doesn't get to share it with you guys. And he's, he's deeply, deeply um, incensed at the injustice of it all. And, and they never recover right. from the, right. yeah, the trauma <laughs> of what has happened tonight. I'm going to have to do my own Christmas episode on the History Land YouTube channel just to, to show what's going on. <laughs> see we'll, this, join see? You. we'll join you, Josh. Excellent. Oh, I see. Now I've got mutiny. I've got deserters. <laughs> Follow <in> me <laughs> this way. <laughs> oh, you're the expert on maintaining discipline here. Uh, no, exactly. I'm the expert on how people tried to maintain discipline and <laughs> fundamentally failed. So I know how not to do it, but not necessarily how to do it. Let's let's try and get down to business. Um, it's a Christmas special, so technically there should be like a five minute window for each of you. I'm not even going to attempt to get the stopwatch out. Just hit us with the the ideas behind, well, you know, who you feel is most misunderstood and the kind of reasoning behind that. And as usual, I will sit here and ask some incredibly acerbic and awkward questions, which is what I do best, or at least so my girlfriend tells me. And um, then I'll open it up to the floor. And we will start, let's start with Rachel. <laughs> um, okay, so I am arguing that Marshall Auguste Marmot is one of the misunderstood uh, individuals of the Napoleonic Wars um, for a couple of reasons I think. <clears throat> if you look at kind of any discussion um, around the marshals um, online there seems to be a consensus that people generally get up into verbal punch-ups when Napoleon's mentioned but generally speaking people are a bit more civil when we're discussing the marshals unless the marshals being discussed are Marmot or Bernadotte. So we're going to cover both the bases um, but Inevitably, somebody will come forward and say that Marmot is the worst marshal because he's a traitor and he's a Judas and he's the sort of French Brutus, etc, etc. And I think that's almost got to the point that it's retrospectively tainted any kind of discussion around his career because there's inevitably going to be somebody that says, well, he's the worst, he doesn't count, he shouldn't have been a marshal, he was only promoted because he was Napoleon's friend. And even at the time, when he became one of the post-Vagran marshals alongside MacDonald and Oudinot, the day was that MacDonald was France's choice, Oudinot was the army's choice and Marmont was friendship's choice. He was only really promoted because he was Napoleon's oldest friend. 
And Napoleon then kind of hit him with a double whammy and said, well, between ourselves, you, you haven't really justified my choice in you yet. So it's a way to sort of congratulate somebody on their promotion. Um, so, it, yeah, inevitably when he's discussed, there's always somebody who seems to imply that he shouldn't have been a marshal, that he wasn't martial material and he didn't compare to Davu and he doesn't compare to Messina. But even in some scholarly works, you can kind of see that train of thought as well. In David Chandler's book on the marshals, which is probably my favourite work on the marshals, the Marmon chapter begins with the sentence, Marmon is remembered for his failures. And ultimately, all of the marshals failed at some point. None of them were completely perfect. But even when we discuss, you know, Messina had a career of two very distinct tasks. We still talk about Zurich and we talk about Genoa and we talk about, you know, Italy, etc. We don't really, we, we acknowledge he failed in the peninsula, but it doesn't taint his whole career. But with Marmont, everybody talks about Salamanca and the surrender in 1814. But when you read his career, I, I genuinely do think he was martial material. Um, I'm not saying he was necessarily the most likable bloke, but if we were discussing likable people, I'd be arguing for Roland Taylor, Marshal Mortier. Um, but when you, when you look at his career, there are quite a lot of occasions where he was really fundamentally either essential or at very least very useful to Napoleon. He was useful at the Battle of Alexandria, at Lodi, at Castiglione. Um, and it was, it was really thanks, we talk about Napoleon crossing the Alps, we were just discussing that painting before we started recording, but it was thanks to Marmon's initiative that they got the cannon over the Alps. It was him that came up with the idea of using hollowed out tree trunks and getting the sledges pulled sort of um, by, by the soldiers getting it over there. Um, it was thanks to him, you know, that they managed to sneak the alter, uh, artillery, sorry, past Fort Bard. At Marengo, it was his concentration and command of the artillery um, and his very quick dispatch of the light guns to Desay when he arrived that helped secure the victory. But these kind of things are never really mentioned, nor is the fact that his artillery reforms greatly enhanced the, the French artillery performance throughout the rest of the Napoleonic Wars. It made them a much more efficient force through his standardization. He was sent to Dalmatia, where his civic and military reforms were so positive that in 1817, the, the Austrian emperor said, what a great pity it was that Marshal Marmot wasn't left in Dalmatia another two or three years. And that his public works, technically, you can see the impact of them still today. So I don't think you can frame it as being, you know, a, a, a wholly negative or incompetent career because the, the facts just don't line up. And, and even with Salamanca, while it was undoubtedly a defeat, he, he came as close, I think, as almost any of the marshals ever did to catching Wellington on the hop. And, you know, inevitably when you mention, again, some of the marshals, sorry, I keep saying inevitably, um, somebody will chime in, well, they're not really that great if they lost this, if they lost that battle, what about this? But I would argue that losing to Wellington isn't really something to be ashamed about because Wellington was a superlative general. Different if you'd lost to somebody who didn't really know their craft, but Napoleon lost to Wellington, Massena lost to Wellington, some of the finest French generals of the era lost to Wellington. I don't necessarily think that's a stain on your character that you didn't beat the guy who overall came out top in the whole conflict. Um, in terms of the, the betrayal, the whole idea that he's a Judas, um, I, I don't quite subscribe to that idea because um, it's, it's been suggested that obviously after Leon where he was viewed as being very disillusioned and very dispirited and he was 
kind of late in turning up. Um, Napoleon verbally told him to strip shreds and said he'd acted like he was a stupid second lieutenant. And the idea was that he was so annoyed and so offended that he betrayed out of spite. I'm not, obviously you can't say for certain because the only person who knows has been dead for quite a long time, but I'm not convinced by that train of thought because he held out until the Allies were at Paris. And it, to be fair, none of the Allies had particular reasons to necessarily be kind to the civilians in Paris. You know, plenty of other cities had suffered at the hands of the French army. Um, and is it wholly impossible that he looked and said, well, we're not gonna win. And they weren't going to win. He might have held off for another few weeks. He might have won that individual battle and they would have still lost inevitably. But to protect the civilians, to protect his own men, because we, we argue he had a duty to Napoleon. And yes, he owed as much to Napoleon as most of the marshals and more than some. But at what point did he have a duty of care to his own men, to the men he was commanding, to the civilians in Paris who were going to suffer if the city was sacked? So I don't think it's impossible that he looked and said, this, this is, we're on a losing, we're on a losing path here. If I surrender now, potentially some lives can be spared. And I think the fact that he held out to the gates of Paris, to me, doesn't suggest self-interest. He could have gone a lot quicker if he'd wanted to. And I find it really interesting, and I've mentioned this on Twitter before, that when we talk about the traitor marshals, we talk about Bernadotte and we talk about Mira. It, it, talk about um, Marmont, sorry, who logically had reasons for doing what they do, but nobody mentions Mira, who turned to keep his hands on his own throne and out of blatant self-interest, it, it must be said, and he's still the glamour boy, the poster boy, the marshal's the one that everybody sort of is enthused by, while Bernadotte and Marmont are, are kind of castigated. But ultimately they weren't going to win and I would argue he probably had more of a duty of care to the men under his command not to throw away their lives than he did at Napoleon because France had to be more than just Napoleon personally and at what point does blind loyalty to one person cross the line into fanaticism um, and I think he did the right thing ultimately because it might not be particularly tasteful in a dramatic sense but realistically throwing away lives is never going to be more important than saving them. So that's why I'm going to put forth Marmot as a candidate. And that, folks, is how we do things on the Napoleon Assist. Wow. Um, I haven't recorded in quite a while. And that just kind of reminds me why I love doing shows like this, because that was just such a good pitch. Admittedly, I'm biased here because I've been arguing this for a heck of a long time that Marmont is grossly underrated. I, I've been sitting here thinking, okay, so I'm meant to ask a really kind of awkward question here. Um, the difficulty when you completely agree with every single word that somebody's said is that it becomes quite difficult to do that. For folks who were um, thinking, who kind of had their ears prick up when um, Rachel mentioned the David painting of Napoleon crossing the Alps, what we were actually talking about is whether or not we could take Marengo and replace Marengo with a llama, the like of which we're seeing on Josh's jumper right now, um, and kind of achieving some sort of Simon Bolivar crossover. Um, or even, you know, perhaps you could recreate that famous um, charge of the Scots Greys at Waterloo, but replace all of the horses with llamas. Um, <laughs> Nothing like a challenge. Nothing like a challenge, absolutely. Um, so that's where we were really going with that one. I'm sorry to disappoint, there was no kind of 
highbrow conversation happening there. Um, this isn't a, a difficult question, but it's just a, one out of curiosity. When Marmont was appointed Marshal post Fagram, wasn't he himself quite surprised by the whole thing? I think and... so, because he, he'd famously been quite disappointed when he wasn't included on the list in, in 1804. And he kind of very famously said, well, if Bessier could be a Marshal, anybody could be one. But he was very young at the time. He was only 29. Um, Davu was the next youngest at 34. Um, so I think, I don't know if he'd sort of resigned himself, you know, he wasn't given a big command, he'd been sent to Dalmatia um, to kind of do more kind of civil work. So I don't know if he'd sort of resigned himself to that he wasn't going to be a marshal or, or what the case was. But I think it did kind of eventually take him by surprise a little bit. This whole thing about the, the loyalty to Napoleon, I, I completely agree with you. Um, because there is always this kind of enduring thing about at what point is is fighting on just pure insanity and, and you, you know you could this is one of those points where you could start to draw comparisons with the situation in the third reich in 1945 and at what point do you decide look it's quite obvious that this is over and now you need to start thinking about preserving life rather than fighting on for a lost cause um the one thing that you could perhaps argue is to what extent was Marmont a lone wolf? And this is something that I do see bandied around a bit on Twitter. And I'm just kind of curious about your thoughts on it. To what extent does Marmont kind of consult with those below him and come to a sort of unified decision on, you know what, yes, we can fight on, perhaps we can win a little bit longer, but ultimately we're at the gates of Paris and there is, as you said, kind of an, an, an inevitability to what's going to follow. Well, he had consulted with Joseph Bonaparte, um, who'd empowered him to negotiate a surrender and then promptly cleared off. Um, but he hadn't sort of just gone off on his own. The one area where I think potentially it is a little bit distasteful is that he didn't tell his men. And they sort of marched up and were surrounded and surrendered. So you could argue that it would have perhaps been a more honourable thing to have told his officers what was happening. Um, but he certainly had consulted with Joseph Bonaparte, as I say, he kind of left Marmont to carry the can. Um, but yeah, I think ultimately, I'm not sure what else he could have done. Well, if I can pitch in, um, coming to Marmont's rescue in some respect, um, and he, he's done his share of mistakes in 1814, especially places like Laon. So there's a lot of things we can criticize him for. Um, but when it comes to the, um, the treason case, um, I think there's a lot to be made for, not as much for Marmont's treason because he clearly did not intend to commit it, but rather um, in favor of his subordinates like General Suham, who, with other generals actively discuss not participating in the renewal of hostilities in the wake of Napoleon's rejection of the conditions. So if we follow that reasoning, and certainly Marmont, uh, when he spoke with uh, Colincourt and with Gurgo, he argued that it's not his decision to really uh, surrender the core, but rather, the reality that his generals, including Suham, openly and deliberately defied him. So I think there is a lot of 
uh, case to be made. And for, for the listeners, I think there is unfortunately not a good English biography of Marmont, but there is a wonderful new biography in French by Franck Favier, uh, who clearly argues this line of reasoning, saying that Marmont has been blamed for the treason, but it is his subordinates who defied him and effectively put him in the position where he had no choice but to surrender. Let me keep it kind of as an open forum for the rest of the room. Josh, Beatrice, anything you'd like to kind of chip in on this? Mostly just that I agree uh, with the with the basic defense of, of Mama and the uh, disagreement with people who simply just leap to the 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 old treason thing, which is probably it's a, I feel it's indefensible to be honest. This, the 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 argument of outright treason, because like uh, Alex said, um, he didn't intend to do it, and I've always thought, to be honest with you, that it was probably the sensible course of action. I've always felt quite sorry for him, particularly the way the stigma kind of gets utterly kind of embedded into his name. You know, the the verb in French, raguser, to betray, uh, if I've uh, translated that correctly. So, you know, if you betray someone, you are quite literally doing a marmont, um, as as I've said before to Josh on, on this show. Um, and it, it's, it's a huge stigma. And I think it's very hard to rehabilitate somebody's reputation after their actions become so deeply embedded in a nation's culture. So brilliant job there, Rachel. Thank you very much. Um, and we will go next to Alex. <laughs> um, I'm going for uh, Kutuzov, uh, like old man. Um, I think he has been unfairly ignored and uh, kind of forgotten in many respects. It's certainly self-serving because I've just spent three years of my life within his company writing a biography. Um, but I thought it is it's a good opportunity to remind people that a uh, simplistic approach to history is never a good one that you know, history is always complex, that uh, human nature is such that simple answers usually are not the correct ones. And the same applies for Kutuzov. You know, when I mention his name, usually, I'm sure in your mind, the image is um, that of either of Australis where he was napping, right, at that council of war, or uh, uh, probably, most probably, you have this Tolstoyan vision of an old man uh, snacking on the fried chicken uh, amidst the slaughter that was the Battle of Borodino. Uh, and remarkably, <laughs> both of these images are kind of true, <laughs> which, which always startled me. It's like, who, who thought of uh, fried chicken <laughs> in the middle of that carnage? Uh, but clearly they did. Uh, so Kudosov is a very interesting man because uh, both um, in terms of character and personality, uh, he is a man of contrasts. And uh, you know, after spending so much time in his company, I find him both inspiring and rather exasperating. He's a man of remarkable personal charm, uh, keen intellect, but also very calculating and artful. 
He's a loving father of five daughters um, who relished life with a very strong sense of fun. In fact, there is a wonderful memoir by French or emigre general Alexander Langeron, uh, who served with Kutuzov in the Danubian principalities. And he said Kutuzov's house was the best place to party. <laughs> and, uh, this is in 1808, 1809, 1810. In fact, to such a degree that the commander in chief of the army uh, had, a, a, had a long-standing grievance against Kutuzov because he was, uh, all the officers wanted to hang around with him. <laughs> And yet uh, this loving father of five daughters uh, was also castigated by contemporaries as a quote, one-eyed old satyr, uh, right? Um, uh, the, the man who was an inveterate womanizer. Um, and he was, I mean, uh, just a few weeks before his death, he was uh, flirting with young women in, in Poland. Um, he was born in province, uh, but his mentality was cosmopolitan, in fact, reading his letters, it is amazing to see him effortlessly switching from Russian to French to German within a, within a span of one, one, pa uh, one passage. And he spoke several other languages, including Turkish uh, and, and English. Uh, as a commander, right, he's often accused of, uh, of being too passive. He's accused of being lethargic, even cowardly. And yet, one of the things that really struck me about him is here's the man who is of remarkable personal courage on the battlefield. He was twice, well, twice, two and a half times, let me put it this way, two and a half times shot in the head and survived. And that half time was at Austerlitz when he was shot in the cheek. Uh, one of his injuries, as some of the listeners to remind them, was uh, when a bullet struck him in the left temple, went through his brain, or at least the frontal part of it, and exited on the opposite side and somehow he survived that injury. Uh, and just to remind again, these are not the small bullets of today. We talk about nice size musket bullet that was shot. And yet he survived that one. The second time he was shot in the, in the, in, in the head when a bullet struck him in the cheek and penetrated through his throat and exited in the back of his side. So he was a man who was leading from the front. Um, and yet he's uh, perceived to be this uh, cautious, even cowardly man. But the closer I looked at his career, the more I was surprised by what a talented man he was. Here's the, an individual who graduated uh, from um, uh, one of the top military schools in Russia, who over the span of uh, 50 years was involved in almost every branch of military service you can imagine. He trained artillery, engineer, grenadiers, infantry, jaggers, or light infantry, pick, uh, lancers, or pickineers. He was presiding over uh, a, a top-notch military school, uh, the so-called, uh, the, the famous cadet corps. And, and he was also a very talented and capable diplomat who served uh, on several occasions as Russia's envoy not to mention the army commander-in-chiefs. And that's, I think, the, the biggest uh, thing that I wanted to bring out today is that we remember this man largely as an old man who has done nothing. And yet, when we look closer, we see an accomplished officer who uh, served with distinction in multiple uh, parts of his career and who, most crucially, in 1812, defeats Napoleon not just simply by... Uh, sleeping most of his days, 
but rather through a cal calculated, deliberate policy. So the policy of the bur you know, the that we've talked about of the retreat and avoidance of, of battle, this was part of, of Kutuzov's deliberate approach. And we see that through his letters, through his memorandums, and it is ultimately a policy that uh, defeats Napoleon. And that's the second time tonight. I've just loved my job as a podcasting host. Alex, thank you so much for that. Where to begin with the, the questions and the comments? I, I was struck by what you kind of ended on there about this kind of this suggestion that just because somebody has the strategic wherewithal to withdraw, that somehow makes them cowardly. And it reminded me of a conversation that I've had uh, with a, a couple of particularly ardent Napoleon fans who um, tried to make out that Wellington's great skill in life was running away. Um, because Wellington was great at conducting a strategic withdrawal. One of, one of his few definitive maxims, if we can say Wellington had maxims, was that as a general, you need to know and have the guts to withdraw when the moment requires it. And he, he passed his own test in, in that regard. So for Kutuzov to do the same thing is, is not the mark of somebody who is incompetent or who is cowardly, but rather somebody who can read the situation and play the, the, the strategic game to their advantage. So I'm, I'm really pleased that you, you brought that to the fore. I've, I've got two questions, neither of which I think are particularly acerbic for a change. Um, the first is quite simply, how is he remembered in Russia? Because there are all kinds of parallels that you could potentially draw or not draw with what Russia has to do during what they call the Great Patriotic War. That, for folks who aren't familiar, is Russian involvement in the Second World War, uh, in their case, 1941 to 45. But also history is, is political in many nations at the best of times, particularly so, I believe, in Russia. So what's the kind of the consensus at the moment or just isn't there one? Oh, absolutely. Uh, the, both of these are very, very good points. In fact, um, I think the parallel with Wellington is very, um, very appropriate because um, of number of reasons. One being that on the eve of, uh, of the war in 1812, when there was this uh, internal discussion among the Russian officers, senior officers, on what strategy to pursue against uh, Napoleon, uh, the one that prevailed was ultimately based on the close study of Wellington's campaigns. So this is Russians looking at what, what Wellington is doing in Portugal in 1810 and 11, which is a methodical but uh, defensive uh, strategy, uh, which is not sexy, right? It's, it doesn't give you that kind of uh, great, um, uh, right, great decisive victories that you, you won, but it, is, it, it certainly worked uh, for the British and, and the Russians were already seeing that in 1812. Um, and, and Kutuzov shares that mindset. So, uh, and the second, I think, important parallel between Kutuzov and Wellington is that uh, in many respects, um, their careers uh, uh, really took off after their death. Well, it was a perception, not careers, but perceptions really. Uh, took off after their death because they have been lionized um, uh, uh, after their passing. While uh, while you know while alive, they have been criticized. So we you know we know that Wellington has been subject to a great deal of criticism. Uh, maybe not as necessarily as military leader, uh, although there was that too. But also as part of his political career, and Kutuzov was uh, derided for uh, his passive, his cautious. Uh, even cowardly, so as sometimes he was accused in 1812 policy. And then when he dies, 
he's almost overnight turned into this national hero. Uh, and one of the one of the key elements in this is the fact that he dies early, you know, so to speak. He dies in April of 1813, so he didn't have to really face Napoleon's counterattack. So it says, uh, uh, Will, uh, what's his name? Uh, Robert Wilson, right? The great commissioner. As he, fame, as he writes in his diary, Kutuzov died very opportunely for his fame. This is a quote, <laughs> because he dies in April and he warns Tsar that if you keep pushing forward, you will, quote, get your nose blooded. And then two weeks after he dies, Russians and Prussians indeed are defeated, and then yet again are defeated, right? Uh, so Kutuzov didn't have to do any of that, and it is his successor should never now have to carry the, the burden of it. So right now, Kutuzov is, is a national hero, and he's a, he's a legend in that respect. And my fact, other... You, you, yeah, sorry to interrupt, but there is a wonderful polling that is done in Russia. I don't think uh, Britain or the United States uh, have this polling of historical individuals. And Kutuzov is consistently in the top 20 world important individuals for the Russian responses, uh, um, which is quite an interesting, uh, quite an interesting thing uh, by itself. Wow, fascinating. Do you see, and this is going down a rabbit hole, but I'm not even fast, folks. You, you can just listen to this as far as I'm concerned, because it's interesting. Do you see many non-Russian figures featuring in that? kind of top 20 list or, or does well, it I can tell yeah be... I mean uh, that list is uh, you, know, you can you can certainly uh, search it. it it's in Russian but nonetheless um, so Napoleon is higher than <laughs> higher than <laughs> that's the <laughs> uh, so he's there <laughs> uh, but um, interesting there was a separate you know part of that polling was uh, uh, the uh, name the greatest uh, individual of the 19th century and Kutuzov came in top three. So, which is, again, it, it shows you the kind of extent of, of the myth-making that, uh, that takes place. Uh, in, that, in that list of uh, the famous top 20 figures, um, Kutuzov was number 15, uh, uh, and I think Isaac Newton was number 19. <laughs> Okay, read into that what you will, folks, but that's fascinating. My only other question, Alex, is about his kind of interpersonal skills as a commander. What's he like to actually work for and work under and also work alongside? Um, that's a great question in the sense that we see his uh, trajectory of his career kind of, um, you know, th that kind of approach evolving over, uh, over the um, trajectory of his career. And in the beginning, he's uh, what I call the jack of all trades because whenever there is a need to fix things. Uh, they send him and he's consistently successful because he's very hands-on. Um, in many respects, like a micromanager, a Wellingtonian, right? Mm -hmm. You know, the, for the listeners, Wellington was a notoriously a micromanager. Um, and Kutuzov is like that, but towards the later years, especially 1810, 11, and 12, partly it's because of his health, maybe partly it's because of experience. He's willing to kind of give certain uh, space to his subordinates, right? He provides general, the guidance uh, on what he expects to be achieved. And then he expects the subordinates then to, to act uh, within, that, uh, within that area. Uh, that, that creates some problems, of course, in 1812, for example, maybe some of his instructions are too, uh, too vague 
when he sends, for example, instructions to Chichagov, the uh, admiral who is commanding Army of Danube and is supposed to intercept Napoleon. Well, one of the reasons why Napoleon is able to escape in Berezina, in fact, the key reason, if you ask me, is because of the, uh, of, of the Russian mismanagement of the situation. And Kutuzov is certainly is, is at fault there. Let me open it straight up to the floor. Thank you, Alex, for brilliant answers to questions on, on what is already a brilliant pitch. Beatrice, do you want to, to come in on this? Yes, but um, it's something completely unrelated to the battlefield, but um, it, it bears onto the legend that Kutuzov is. And in the Netherlands, he also has a kind of a mythical status, not because predominantly of his experiences and, and uh, the things that he did on the battlefield because of his wound, his eye wound, because he was treated in the Netherlands in the clinics in Leiden. And people were so astounded uh, by the miracle that Kutuzov was still alive. And at, at some point, a doctor presented a PhD dissertation like you just had, Zach. And this doctor said that there were wounds, eye bullet wounds in war um, that people would not survive. And they used the wound that was inflicted on Kutuzov because he was already famous. And this doctor said that no one could survive such a wound. And then Kutuzov was attending this defense without the professor knowing and stood up and said, dear professor, I am here and I can see you. So he sort of played with his myth and then afterward <laughs> other people wrote dissertations about Kutuzov and his wounds so that's also uh, a part of the myth making Kutuzov himself supported. Can I just say if anyone's thinking of doing that with my PhD when I have to do a viva you can just leave right now I am not having that at my PhD defense um but yeah, thank you for that. That's just an absolute nightmare. So yeah, this thing's completely unsurprised. Actually, I'm the person who had that wind and I um, survived. I'm standing here. How are you going to deal with that? That's, that's literally every PhD student's worst nightmare right there. Um, but yeah, talk about giving you the measure of the guy. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that was part of his grand tour uh, that uh, he, he traveled. Uh... Mm. Josh, uh, let me bring you I, in. Well, I always, I always sort of, I, I, I've often joked that if there was ever anybody who was going to defeat Napoleon, it's the guy who got shot in the head twice and refused to die. Um, <laughs> <laughs> You're forgetting that half one. <laughs> exactly, two and a half times. <laughs> he cheated death three times and, uh, <laughs> and lived to tell about it. Uh, uh, my only question is because I'm very, very fascinated by the Russian campaign. Um, with the interplay between him and his his um, uh, mercurial commanders in 1812, uh, famously uh, Prince Bagration and, and Barclay de Tolly, who he took over from just before the Battle of Borodino. And I always found it interesting how he had to kind of, he seemed to play the sort of mediating figure, like he sort of said, between his generals. And um, especially on big subjects like do we fight at Borodino? Do we do, just do we abandon Moscow? And how he would normally side with with Barclay and things like that. And I think that sort of shows his his great sort of insight into into the larger strategy at hand, and shows how good a choice he really was to be on hand at that critical stage of, of the campaign to save the Russian army, essentially. 
Yeah, absolutely right. And and that's, uh, in many respect, kind of the tragedy of Barclay d'Etoli, uh, mm. whose strategy ultimately prevails, but uh, his, the whole credit goes to Kutuzov. Now, Barclay d'Etoli returns back as a national hero in, uh, um, in, in 1815. In fact, interestingly, Kutuzov, so Russian Empire has uh, the highest set of military awards you can receive is the Order of St. George, and Kutuzov is the first uh, man to have all four ranks of it, all four levels of it. And the second one is Barclay de Tolly, which is quite appropriate because these two men contributed to Napoleon's defeat uh, um, uh, greatly. Uh, but of course, Barclay de Tolly dies in 1818, is largely kind of pushed aside. Uh, and Kutuzov instead is kind of lionized. And, a great, and, and to, to go back to Zach's kind of point uh, about the use of history. Right, uh, for political uh, ends. Uh, Kutuzov is buried in the middle of St. Petersburg in this remarkable cathedral uh, of Our Lady of Kazan, which, is, uh, which becomes the symbol of military triumph of, of Russia because it, it, is become, it, it is a place where the military trophies were displayed. Uh, so there was already a legend surrounding him, but Kutuzov really becomes the kind of mythical figure uh, in, in World War II because uh, we, we know how World War II began for Soviets, uh, abysmally, and I'm, I'm putting it mildly. And Soviet uh, leader Joseph Stalin uh, famously gave a speech in which he argued, or at least he responded to a question uh, from a certain comrade, <laughs> uh, uh, and in which he said that, hey, we're not losing this war. We're doing what Kutuzov did to Napoleon. This is part of our strategic retreat, and we'll strike back. And so. Uh, in that sense, he elevated Kutuzov in this kind of rarefied field where no one can touch him. And there is this, in, in the book I mentioned, this, this farcical scene where in, uh, Stalin, in, in one of the you know, kind of responses, he said that Kutuzov was two heads above uh, Bar uh, 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 Barclay de Tully and one head above Napoleon. And so uh, why, you know, when the Soviet dictator said so, that is taken almost literally. And so at the conference, there's a guy giving a talk and then going, you know, speaking of uh, objections, somebody raises a hand, so stands up and says, you, sir, only show that Kutuzov was one head above Napoleon when Stalin said it's two heads. <laughs> so you, had, you had to try better. <laughs> I, I almost fear that, you know, if, if you failed to, to adequately demonstrate that um, Kutuzov was, was two heads, uh, above, then you know you might get a, a knock on the door at four thirty a.m. from you know so, some very irate members of, of the KGB or whichever <laughs> variation of the secret uh, police was active in Russia at the time. Uh, <laughs> so not really the feedback you want to receive on a paper at a conference either. Um, Josh, thanks for that. Last but no means least, we're going to go to Rachel. Um, it was just asking, you know, when you said about the Tolstoyan element, do you think it's largely down to Tolstoy that? he's quite a misunderstood character, or do you think it's an element of almost kind of echoing the debate on Wellington v Napoleon, that people are more drawn to the sort of dramatics and flair rather than sort of like stolid, sensible competence? Oh, no doubt Tolstoy plays it. I mean, what Homer, right, or you know, other great kind of historians of antiquity are they to these you know, heroes that we remember? Tolstoy is that to, uh, to, uh, uh, Kutuzov and Wellington doesn't have that, right? He doesn't have that <laughs> one uh, amazing writer who 
uh, turns him around. Um, uh, but to Kutuzov, for Kutuzov, this is not necessarily a good thing because Tolstoyan vision of him is that of a passive man who understands the larger forces at, at play and who resigns to these forces. And that creates him as a passive observer of things. But the reality is, is, is not that. Uh, Kutuzov's passivity is a deliberate act. It's part of his strategy. It's part of his uh, actually action, right? It's, it's a weird thing, right? To, his action is to be passive. Um, and, and, um, and, uh, but that is uh, consumed by the vision of Tolstoy. Um, so and that's one of the th reasons really I wanted to kind of uh, write this book is to, to show the real man that is largely consumed by the official uh, propaganda, but also the literary figure that Tolstoy creates. And Alex, I make no um, bones about this. When that book is out, please come back and we will do a lengthy episode, if you're willing, on um, the on Kutuzov and and his life because it sounds absolutely fascinating and oh yeah we'll talk that. about all his parties mm -hmm. same goes by the way <laughs> <laughs> for those of us with channels <laughs> should i be advertising another channel on my podcast i'm not sure i should but it's josh so i'll, I'll let it slide because everybody <laughs> loves josh Next up, we're not going to go to Josh. Just for that, I'm going to make him wait a little bit longer. That, that's his little tiny bit of punishment that he I will draw out his agony. And instead, I will go to Beatrice. Yes, thank you, Zach. Um, thank you very much, because I would like to bring in a slightly different angle in this discussion, because we are focusing on warfare, we are focusing on male affairs, we are focusing on the histories of the battles, but we all know that it's really the politics, the European politics, the international politics, it's the whispers behind the thrones that matter, and it's the legacies of those battlefields that matter, and who is able to shape the politics after the battles are won or lost, and that is why I would like to bring in also a person that has been, I think, wrongfully ignored, and that is Hortense de Beauharnais. Hortense de Beauharnais. And um, it's quite a bit of a tragic figure, I think, because she has been ignored and uh, because she herself didn't mind to be ignored. So she was one of those historical figures who acted as a carrier for others and made that her life's fate and also her life's ambition. She was, for example, the stepdaughter of Napoleon who was with him in 1814 and 1815 when he lost, when everyone ran away, when his brothers left him, when Marie-Louise left him. She was there and she took on the duties of a hostess in the Tuileries in 1814. Uh, and also in 1815, when he was still contemplating his second defeat after Waterloo and everything, everyone was mourning the dead or running away or traumatized, she was with him and she encouraged him to flee for the United States or America. She was with him and she also um, gave him some of her diamonds in order to make him flee. And she's his stepdaughter. She was also his... Um, um, uh, she also married his stepdaughter because she was the daughter of Josephine de Beauharnais out of her first marriage with Alexandre de Beauharnais and adopted by Napoleon. But she was also married to his brother. So 
she is not just the daughter of Napoleon and supporting him really where his real siblings aren't. She's also the wife of his brother. She was the first queen of the Netherlands. She was the first one who was appointed queen of the Netherlands in 1806 before the Orange uh, dynasty was made king and queen afterwards. So that's also something that we in the Netherlands should not forget. She also was the one who was, um, and that's perhaps the most important way in which she contributed to the Napoleonic legacy. She was the one that was the object. She was to some extent at the mercy of the allied powers in 1814, 1815. In 1814, Tsar Alexander was completely enamorated by her and uh, captivated by her charm because she also could uh, dance and party and sing, Alex. She also was uh, very, um, very talented. And it's also said that she taught Napoleon to waltz in preparation for his marriage to Marie Louise. But what I wanted to say is in 1814, 1815, when everything seems to be lost for Napoleon, she is the one who is first object of the Allied powers, and she has to flee France. She's put on the top black list of people that are enemies to the new French state and the new European collective security arrangement. In August 1815, the Allied Council met to discuss her case specifically. So she was really considered a threat, not because she could fight herself, because she had money, she had support, she had influence, and she had indeed a great charisma. And uh, they made her flee from France. And she went to Aix, she went to Bern, she went to Baden. And in the end, she bought herself a castle in um, the Bodensee, the Arenenberg in Switzerland. And it wasn't that she stayed an object there. She again became an agent of her own history and also an agent of European history. And she raised her third son, to be a radical. This is also something that's so fascinating about Hortense. She was born in Paris from a mother who was raised on a slave um, estate in Martinique. She was also partly raised there between her fifth and her tenth year. She was part of the ancient regime. She was part of the nobility, but she was also completely wedded to Napoleon's more radical revolutionary cause. And she gave all that, this, 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 this mixture of ancient regime, feudal power, aristocracy, um, the charm, the elegance, but also the radicality. She gave that to her son, Charles Louis Napoleon, who was born, he was born in 1808, and he saw his um, uncle, Napoleon, leave for the battlefield. He even waved to him when he said goodbye to go to Waterloo. She took him with her in exile, and she raised him in a very radical revolutionary way. Um, she brought people from the ancient regime into her castle, Madame de Sahel, but also um, her castle, but also Chateaubriand. But most importantly, the son of a good friend of Robespierre, Philippe Le Pas, was his tutor, and she raised him with radical revolutionary ideas on what to do with France afterwards. And the two brothers, well, she had four sons, but the first one died, and then the second one uh, was also quite a radical. And in the spring of 1831, when they were 23 and 21 uh, years old, they joined the Carbonari, but the second one died, Charles-Louis lived and survived, and he radicalized even further, and he was also inspired by his mother, and he wrote extensive um, stories, he wrote about artillery, like his uncle Napoleon had done, he wrote a book Les Idées Napoléon, and you already know where this is going, 
1848, he becomes the president of France. And then in 1851, he commits a coup d'etat and he launches the second empire, the second French empire. And he becomes the emperor of the French, Napoleon III. And in becoming Napoleon III, he also adopts a song, Partant pour la Syrie, uh, composed allegedly by his mother or by her flute teacher, and makes it a hymn of France. So the circle is closed again. So it's, it's Hortense who is the kingmaker, Hortense is the emperor, the whisperer behind the throne. She is on the one hand object, she is at the mercy of the forces of history, the forces of male-dominated uh, military history, but she takes her fate into her own hands and she raises her sons and then at least one surviving son to treat into, tread into the footsteps of his uncle and becoming the second French emperor. So I think that is something that we should also bear in mind if you're discussing the generals, the marshals, the battlefields, the warfare, there are always women unofficially present, but very influentially present. And I think it's also time that we start to bring them to the fore. And I'm very happy that um, you gave me the opportunity, Zach, to bring Hortense here back center stage. And more than that, as um, you and I know already, there is a plan in the pipeline for a most significant woman of the Napoleonic era episode, which will air in January. We'll yet to record it. Beatrice, thank you for that. Um, I'll be honest, I approached this one from a position of ignorance. So I ended up probably taking more notes in the course of that pitch than I did in whole lectures at university. Um, it was fascinating. Thank you. I've only really got one question. Um, the comment that I'd make is I'd love how you kind of brought it full circle and kind of brought in Napoleon III and kind of emphasised her role as kind of kingmaker, if you like, emperor maker. Um, but it's it's about what you said in relation to her being on that blacklist of enemies of the French state um, following the, the restoration. How much of a threat did she pose in practice? Because there's a distinction, obviously, between perception and reality. And I'm conscious of what you said about, you know, her kind of pushing Napoleon to flee and in that sense sounding like quite a pragmatist so does she have a desire to look at ways to to restore a, a bonapartist regime in france or is this just a kind of acknowledgement of the fact that here we have a woman who is very gifted who was at the center of napoleonic society french napoleonic society and as such could become a rallying point for that Napoleonic movement should it fake should it have a resurgence? Yes, I, I think you're already formulating it in such a way that helps me making the case that it, it was to some extent a self-fulfilling prophecy. Hortense was not raised to become a revolutionary. She was not raised to become a leader. She was raised to become the daughter of some kind of prince or duke or admiral. And uh, she was completely loyal to Napoleon. Uh, even if she, although she hated his brother, she remained uh, wedded to him. She wasn't always faithful, but neither was he. But she remained faithful to the cause of Napoleon, of his brother, the cause of the Napoleon needs. But more than that, it was not just a dynasty, it was also the notion of 
universal suffrage. It was the notion of uh, more space for women in education. She was, for example, educated at one of the most progressive at that time uh, female uh, institutes by Madame de Campan. And she also campaigned and tried to lobby to bring women more into the acquaintances of the literary uh, circles um, and also listen to them politically. She was also a great admirer of all kinds of, of literally literal uh, works that were published at the time, uh, Chateaubriand, Benjamin Constant. So all the radical, uh, other radical leaders also went into her salon. So she also grew into her role. And when the allies put her on the blacklist at 1815-16, they perhaps paid themselves a real misservice because only then when she had to flee and she was considered an armed Jacobin, that's where she really adopted and appropriated the role of now being the only one surviving person who could protect the legacy of Napoleon. He was away, no one else would step into his shadows. Her estranged husband didn't do that. The brothers didn't do it. So she was the one who sort of supported her sons in joining force with the Carbonari, trying to outdo the restorative forces, uh, raise an army in Italy, uh, and then go back to France. And she also was the one that, that really supported her son, Charles-Louis, the later emperor, in, uh, in, in working hard to kind of fill this Napoleonic shadow and also the longing that was still there, as you rightly put it. There was a great desire in France to bring back a Napoleon, a Bonaparte to the throne. And she helped um, that movement to fulfill that aim. So you could say that counter-terrorist forces sometimes create their own dangers, their own biggest risks in prosecuting them. You've just said exactly what I was going to try and say by way of a bridge. So you, you've left me without anything to say. Uh, and, and in the desperate hope that one of our lovely guests will say, I'm going to throw it open to the floor. Folks, what have you got in terms of responses to this one? Total oh. agreement. <laughs> I mean, yeah, Napoleon would have been better if he'd had a dozen Hortenses and Eugènes and a few less useless Bonaparte siblings. He would have probably been better off in the long run. Uh, you know, Hordan is one of my favorites uh, for a number of reasons, not the least of them being the fact that she's so uh, strong-willed and really independent-minded, even, even when she plays this role of a, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of, of a um, daughter-in-law or sister-in-law to, uh, or stepdaughter to Napoleon. I, I feel bad for her in, 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 in the fact that she was caught in this relationship with Louis Bonaparte. Louis, uh, I know uh, Beatrice in, in Netherlands, he's, he's remembered well as a king, right? The good old uh, king. But he's a very uh, a contrasting figure, isn't he? Um, he is intelligent, he's sensitive, but as, an, as a husband, he is morbidly jealous. <laughs> right? I, no, I, you're completely right, Alex. Uh, in the Netherlands, uh, the Louis Napoleon, Lodewijk, as he's called uh, in, in our country, is completely admired and revered, and there's all kinds of statues and people pointing to him. He was the one that saved the Netherlands through disasters, to floods, and he really tried to, to do his best to kind of save the Netherlands from the wrath of Napoleon to such an extent that Napoleon put him out of the, um, um, how do you say it? Um, well, he, and, and, 
Yeah, in the end, he um, resigned himself, Louis Napoleon, but he knew it was a matter of matter of time that Napoleon would push him away and incorporated the Netherlands in, in the empire. But still, he's remembered well in the Netherlands. But when I started to do my research for this book and I came across Hortense and I read her memoirs, I read the memoirs and her letters of her um, uh, chambermaids, of other people surrounding her, her husband, Louis Napoleon, he was such a spiteful and a nasty a human being. He, he completely did not want to have her any light of the day in the Netherlands. So when she started to grow more popular than he did, he sort of um, prohibited her from, from leaving the palace because he didn't want the Dutch people to love her more than they loved him. And he was always envying her. And he also, and that's that's a really nasty story about if you if you have fake news, false nouvelle. Um, one of the first things that Louis Napoleon did, that he asked the Dutch Minister of Justice van Manen in his office, and he told him and he ordered them to spread fake news about Hortense that she had all kinds of lovers and she was a kind of um, yeah, very loose woman with loose morals, which she wasn't, which she wasn't at all. And even today, if you, if you for example, open the English uh, Wikipedia site, it still says Hortense had many lovers which she didn't, only in the end, only in the very last end, but she didn't. And this is one of the fake, the fake news uh, things, rumors, that Louis Napoleon spread about her. So he was a real nasty character. Uh, so, so happy that you brought that in. And one, one little detail, um, which is also a personal detail, this is, you know, you people at home can't see it, but this is one of the first editions of her memoirs, and it's stored at the library, the university library, directly opposite of my office at the Drift 6 in Utrecht, and this was the palace of Hortense. Napoleon <sighs> Hortense created a palace, redecorated it, and she lived there for a couple of weeks. It's now the university library. I only am sorry to say that she hated Utrecht. She found the women of Utrecht awfully ugly. Their clothing was ugly. The weather was always gray. There were rats in the canals. There still are, by the way. And so she really <laughs> disliked Utrecht and wanted to leave as quickly as possible, which of course makes me even more sadder about her. You, you know, about her relationship with Louis, uh, one of the you know, little detail, but always, you know, histories, those little details really make it interesting for, for, for us, right? Uh, Louis, we know that he had some some uh, illness that he unsuccessfully uh, tried to cure. And one of the cures, of course, that he tried, to, oh, he resorted was consistently so, was taking bath in boiled tripe. I don't know if you've ever boiled <laughs> tripe at home. <laughs> or took bath in it. <laughs> One of, one of the many reasons the marriage failed was the, the lingering aroma, right? <laughs> 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 you. Uh, speaking of which, uh, Beatrice, uh, um, she did, you know, you mentioned that um, she had the uh, affair uh, later on, right? This is after separation. She had an affair with, uh, with Flahou, uh, who was uh, himself an alleged son of Talleyrand, which I like that connection. But I love the fact that uh, Cortons and Flahou had a son who later yes. on, right, plays an important role with, with his stepbrother oh, during the yes. empire. Yes, and this is the son um, uh, uh, who brought out the memoirs by uh, Hortons. So the book that I have here is edited by, um, uh, let me see it here. Yeah, Auguste Morny. 
that was the way he was called. So it's the her fourth son, and he should survive to bring out the memories of his mother, which I think is mm. even better. Mm -hmm. mm. Misunderstood to say the least. Then that's the, the, you, everything about you just what you just said about her current perception and and uh, the play, her place in history seems misunderstood. I really, it's it's kind of spooky that you chose uh, Hortense actually because in the the person I'm going to to argue for, um, she came up actually just today because during the Swedish succession crisis, um, one of her sons, Napoleon wanted to put one of his sons in the running to be successor to the King of Sweden and was dissuaded by it because the nobles of Sweden were, wouldn't take, wouldn't, wouldn't accept him. But it goes to show how much Napoleon actually valued her. She was a great favorite of his. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Yes. And you've just given us a massive spoiler to what you're about to, <laughs> who you're about to, to champion, Josh. Um, so three for three in terms of pitches that I now want to do whole episodes based on. Thank you for that, Beatrice. So no pressure, Josh. Can you make it four for four in terms of pitches that are so good that they then go on to become entire episodes of Napoleon Assist in their own right? Excuse me while I just escape from the pillar of my hands for a second um okay well I'll, I'll give it my best shot zach uh but i i don't pretend to try to compete with uh, beatrice alex and rachel because i i'm very much the tiny little minnow in this pond um so my pitch is a is is a is a gentleman who we all know and love or hate and revile depending on depending on who you are in the world. And while not bestowing his name like Quisling and Marmont to national lexicons as a synonym, synonym for traitor, um, he is popularly, popularly seen by academic and amateur alike as a Weasley traitor, a poor soldier, con artist, and a man who richly deserved to be shot. Um, and that is what I often say. Um, I often say that you can gauge the relative levels of Bonapartism in a person based on their answer to the question, should Marshal Bernardo have been shot for dereliction of duty and indeed treason sometime between 1806 and 1813? <laughs> so yes, my, my pitch for the most misunderstood figure of the Napoleonic Wars is, 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 uh, is our good friend, 
the the crown prince of Sweden, who many and myself included called the true winner of the Napoleonic Wars. Um, <laughs> so first of all, I'm just uh, I, I I don't think it's necessary to give you an outline of his career or anything like that here. So we're, I'm going to focus on why I think he's misunderstood. Um, and that is specific. To, if you talk about Benedict um, online today, as Rachel has said about Marmont, um, you can get into arguments really quickly with these two guys, with these two marshals, um, because of his the way he handled his his corps uh, during the battles of Jena and Arstadt in 1806, uh, the Battle of Wagram, which there is a little bit more credence to, and um his decision to in quotes betray napoleon in, in 1813 um so what i'm going to just go and throw this out here first of all was he a traitor i say no just off the bat that is my position i don't think he was a traitor um and indeed scholarship going back as far as the 1920s would say that the accusation of treason cannot be supported um, but my refutation of, of the accusation is less important than the fact that people understand him to be a traitor to this day. And this is the point that needs addressed. So at the Battle of Vienna and Auerstedt, um, he's commander of First Corps of the Grande Armée, and that forms part of one wing of the army in, in um, connection with Marshal Davout, which is meant to land a killer blow on the flank of the Prussian army, whose haphazard movements up to this point, uh, curious movements, some might say up to this point, due to its old fashioned sort of makeup, uh, has actually given a false positive uh, as to where it is, tuna than Napoleonic headquarters. And Napoleon lays out a battle plan based on something that is not actually there. This leads to an awful lot of problems in, in what happens next. And this campaign actually does not show the team of, of Napoleon and his chief of staff, the, the legendary Berthier, as very effective actually, because Napoleon comes up with this, um, this yeah, he, his famously cluttered mind, I might say, spews out this, this basic outline of what he wants to do. And Berthier takes that and then disseminates it. And then he tells everybody what Napoleon wants them to do, but he does not tell them what everybody else is doing or what Napoleon's overall plan is. And then Napoleon being Napoleon improves on this by privately writing letters to all of the different marshals telling them to do various things, resulting in Marshal Murat getting into a just a terrible confusion as to what he's supposed to be doing um, with his cavalry towards Leipzig, depriving a great deal of cavalry from the aid of Davu and Bernadotte. And from what I can see here, uh, and this has been quite well studied, Bernadotte is the, is the Grouchy of this campaign, right? He has given orders to go and do something. And then things happen Specifically, Davu runs bang smack into the entire, like the main bulk of the Prussian army. Meanwhile, Napoleon attacks 50,000 men at Jena, thinking that is the full Prussian army 
and you can you can do parallels with the Battle of Ligny as well and talk about poor French intelligence gathering. But here, a failure of at imperial headquarters in terms of intelligence gathering and in uh, and the conveyance of intention leads to the fact that Bernadotte is, as far as I can see, probably incapable of joining either battle in a meaningful way. And he probably made the right decisions, tactically, strategically speaking, by doing what he was told, given the information he had, if you think about also time constraints of the period, how long it takes the message to get from X, y, X A to Z, how long it takes you to turn armies around. At one point, his forces were spread out over a road between Nuremberg and Dornberg, which is about 80 miles or something like that. And it would have taken most of a day to reroute them anyway. They had maps from the 1760s, for heaven's sake, that they were working from. And so he did what was, he did what was necessary to do and he was there, uh, thereafter blamed by Davout and Napoleon for ignoring orders. And they, later that was turned into deliberately trying to sabotage the war effort because he hated Napoleon. Now, up to this point, we need to remember that, ne that his, 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 his patriotism and his, his devotion to duty and his capability had never actually been called into serious question. He was also always seen as a popular and capable leader. And... He showed that, to be honest, in what he did in 1806. And by a strange irony, because he did not engage in either battle, his entire corps was available to hound the Prussians uh, as they retreated in the, in the days after the two battles. My rambling way there of laying out why he is misunderstood in this is that people ignore all the factors that were weighing on him at this time. When Napoleon himself did not even know what was going on and giving orders based on air, he had to interpret that he needed to march to aid Davu at a place that the Prussians were not supposed to be, or that, it, because if anything, he should be blamed for not actually marching to Napoleon at Jena rather than helping Davu. So in this, I think, he actually shows himself to be a very capable soldier, given what, what was the actual understanding of the situation at hand. Now, the other thing that people say about him is that he betrayed Napoleon in 1830. Um, and the simplicity of that is that um, you have to understand you have to understand a few things about why he got the job as the King of Sweden, of the Crown Prince of Sweden. Um, because Napoleon was at first very cautious about the Swedish succession, unlike in Spain or anywhere else he tried to foist monarchs on. He, although it flattered his predilection for kingmaking, he bided his time until he had a clear idea of politics in Sweden and a better idea of the repercussions because he was very worried about upsetting the Russians at this point. And the Swedish, Swedish minister to France later said that um, Bernadotte was someone that Napoleon did not really trust to carry out his intentions, but was convenient because the Swedish nobility liked him. And therefore Napoleon would be at least assured 
that a unifying figure supposedly in his camp would be in, in Stockholm. So that gives you an idea of what Napoleon was thinking. He had to be sort of brought around to this idea that Bernadotte is the guy, can be moved, moved to, can be given the crown of Sweden. Um, because as well, obviously, people argue that he wanted Bernadotte out the way because of his because of his, because he was in he was hanging under a cloud of shame after Bagram, which again is a whole other is military issue that we could get into, but I won't because time and everything. But um, the has to be said that Bernadotte was not trusted by Napoleon at all. Therefore, so despite that. Despite that, it was politically convenient to allow and to even support um, support Bernadotte as, as Crown Prince of Sweden. Uh, in when it, when Napoleon found out that that candidates like uh, uh, the um, the son of Hortense was no longer would not be accepted and and other things like that. So Bernadotte also had impressed. The Swedish and so Napoleon was was happy enough to try and basically shunt Bernadotte out of the way. In so doing, Bernadotte, being a rather capable political operator, wanted to ensure that he and Napoleon understood each other, and he, on at least two occasions, directly asked Napoleon, "Do you want me to be?" The Crown Prince of Sweden is this um, in line with your policies? Napoleon, for the reasons I said before, said yes. Let destiny take its course. Essentially, go ahead. I want you there, and the Swedish want you there. The second time was very similar, and at this point, the Swedish, um, the, the Swedish uh, house, the Swedish house was was now voting essentially on whether Bernadotte was going to be crown prince and he would he would win I believe by quite an overwhelming majority um, he asked Napoleon again this was in the summer of, of 1810 I believe um, but basically um, is Sweden to be, is Sweden to be a dependency of France if it is back another horse is, a, is, the, is the crux of what he told him. And Napoleon said that because, due to the geographical position of Sweden, it would be very unlikely that Sweden would be anything other than an ally of France, not a dependency. Therefore, Bernadotte, and in, a, and in, a, and in another account, I believe, um, he, he, he was, Napoleon asked him, would you ever go to war, never go to war with France? And Bernadotte is supposed to have said, I will do what is in the interests of, the sweet, of Sweden. Because he really went into this offer with everything he had. He actually, he actually, he actually went up to the Swedish minister in, in, in France and uh, at a party once and gave him this big dramatic speech about how he, he would follow destiny wherever it went 100% basically and uh, he would accept his fate uh, and the the end result is of course that and I should also say uh, on the subject of of including uh, the the feminine uh, side of of this of the Napoleonic Wars, it's, it's very interesting that Bernadotte would probably not have taken the throne uh, or the position of crown prince if his wife Desiree had been 
forced to convert to Lutheranism. But the fact that she was not meant that he was quite happy to convert to Lutheranism himself, but she would never apparently have converted from Catholicism and that would probably have scuppered the entire project. That's just a, that's just a little detail there I, I thought was interesting. Um, and she hated Stockholm as well. And she, she, she basically <laughs> left anyway for large portions of the time, but that's beside the point. This outlines that Napoleon had basically said, you can be the independent monarch of Sweden. You are not going to be tied to the Tuileries. Now, you can take this however you want. Napoleon probably expected Bernadotte to toe the line when the push came to shove, but Bernadotte, unlike the other Bonaparte family members and extended family members, realized that he needed to have autonomy and he wanted Sweden to be independent. And when it came to 1812, 1813, he coldly looked at the situation and realized that Napoleon realistically wanted Sweden to you know, conform to the continental system, to back him up wherever he went, all things that basically meant Sweden would in effect be the dependency of France. And he said, that is not good enough for me. And he accurately realized that the Russians gave better options for a, a stronger independent Sweden as an ally of a major power rather than a dependency. And for these reasons, rather than uh, enmity with Napoleon, which there almost certainly was in, in some manner, um, he chose to uh, throw in with the Sixth Coalition uh, because, because, because it just made good political sense at the time. Napoleon misplayed his hand. He expected Benedict to just be his basic lap dog. He was more concerned with the Tsar being upset about a French marshal on the throne, on the throne of uh, Sweden. We, meanwhile, Alexander immediately made overtures to Bernadotte and laid the groundwork for something in the good relations in the future. So there we have, I hope, this, this is all very confused. It feels very awkward in my head. But um, <laughs> there, there, I hope, lays out why Bernadotte is misunderstood. He's misunderstood as a traitor before, for acting out of personal spite towards Napoleon, personal enmity towards Napoleon by betraying France. But I feel like you cannot really defend the accusation that he was a traitor either in 1806 or 1813. And he is no more there, and therefore he is no more a traitor to France for taking up arms against the First Empire than say the Bourbons were. So that's, that's my pitch, that Bernadotte is the most, the most misunderstood character of the Napoleonic Wars. <laughs> now be careful there. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> Surely the most misunderstood person is um, Napoleon, isn't he? Um, no, anyway, well, yeah. no. <laughs> let's not go there. Uh, we might, we might go there in a minute. Actually, <laughs> thank you for that, Josh. I mean, you talk about Jena Auerstadt. To me, that's sort of almost reminiscent of Derlon, Catherine uh, Ligny that kind of sense of you know whose fault is it that he's not at either and 
you know, we don't turn around and say, well, Derlon, Derlon was a, an absolute muppet and, you know, Derlon was useless. And mm-hmm. um, so it, it's always struck me as a little bit unfair. The other thing here is that once you become the crown prince of Sweden, presumably there is a coronation oath. And you then I'm, I'm looking to Alex and Beatrice on this um, to see if they can give me any tells on, on whether or not I'm chatting absolute rubbish here. But there is a, a if, if there isn't an oath, there is at least a point about loyalty to the nation that you are the head of. You are the head of state, which means you fundamentally are tasked with having the interests of that state before anything else. So what would you rather that Napoleon and, and Bernadotte end up falling out um, over the fact that Bernadotte has some integrity and believes in the notion that you are given a job and therefore you fulfil it, which therefore means putting Sweden's interests first, or would you rather that he, subsid- he, he kind of sells Sweden down the river in order to stay in with Napoleon and effectively reduce another portion of Europe to Napoleonic vassalage? which is sort of the, the picture that you're, you've just painted for us. Um, and in my mind, at least, you know, the, the question, if you're looking at integrity, and integrity surely is the measure of an individual that we may wish to, to admire, um, it doesn't come, you don't get much more in the stakes of, in, of integrity than going, actually, you know what, it doesn't matter what went before, I have a job before me, and my duty is to fulfil the job that I've been chosen to, to do. Um, so I've never had an issue with Bernadotte, but then um, I'm not Napoleon's greatest fan. So perhaps my perspective is skewed and I'm biased as a result. Um, I don't have any questions, ironically. Uh, I just have agreement with you, which is very bad podcasting on my part. I'm going to throw it open to the floor. Anybody want to, to pick up on this one? Alex, go for it. Um, I, I agree with uh, uh, Josh, with you on, on, in, on the events of 18, uh, 11, 12, 13, uh, as, as Zach and you pointed out, uh, once he's in Sweden, uh, Bernadotte pledges an oath of loyalty. Now, he's not a head of state yet because King of Sweden, uh, Karl, is still alive and he will live until 1818. So there is a certainly uh, that uh, 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 fact that limits you know, his freedom of action, so to speak, in in in. in, in um, kind of drafting the foreign policy. Um, but besides, as I said, as, as, as a presumptive heir and a future king, um, as, a, you know, as, a, as a future head of the state, he's at liberty of conducting uh, foreign policy uh, to the benefit of the country that he represents. So I have no problem with him in 1812, 13, or 14. In fact, in 14, um, uh, if anything, he doesn't participate in the invasion of France, uh, which is um, I, I always thought that was uh, nice of him uh, to go and beat up Danes <laughs> instead of the French. <laughs> what I do have a problem with him is, is going back to our stat. Um, mm. Not necessarily of him deliberately defying the orders. We know that that's mm-hmm. fabrica- fabrication post-battle where Napoleon realizes the mistake he has made and factually says, hey, I, I, I told Bernadotte to, to do it. Uh, when we know that the orders, at least as far as we can see, there is no direct order to Bernadotte that does it, right? It posts back yeah, yeah. and claims it. But I do have an uh, issue with Bernadotte failing to get there in time, right? He is late Ooh. for the battle. And he would have been in time if he had made the night march during the night of the 13th 
as he mm-hmm. originally intended to, uh, mm-hmm. but he didn't. Now that's an issue. It's a personal issue, right? It's an issue of yeah. him making a, a call. And again, um, you know, it didn't work. You know, it worked out for the French ultimately. But I think that that's as a marshal, as a general of his stature, I think he should have marched forward and supported the ruin and without even the order from Napoleon. Like that's again mm-hmm. uh, an issue that we can quibble and we will probably <laughs> about. Uh, I mean. I mean, undoubtedly, it is a fair point. The 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 bur- there is a burden on him to support his his comrade if he's in trouble. I think that what what I read, um, you know, in my in my somewhat cluttered notes um, for this is that orders kept coming at rather inconvenient times, which seem to have affected his ability between the 12th and the 13th to move the core to where it was supposed to be. And that on the, between the 13th and the 14th of October, he felt that it had to be concentrated when Napoleon implied it it should have been uh, earlier. Uh, There is some, uh, I believe there is, there, there was, there is one author who estimated that only a certain amount of his corps could have reached one or the other battlefield in time for it to have been useful. Um, but again, this, uh, as you say, it is actually quite difficult because once you once you try and um, once you try and determine on an alternate timeline where he. Uh, responds to one or the other battle where he marches and quotes to the sound of the guns, etc. Um, you come into territory like that where you, where you consider timings and land and, and things like that. So I think that is a, it is a valid point and there is, a, there is a fair argument that he should have marched to Davout's aid when Davout asked for assistance. But on the other hand, that is, that is a less that is less uh, that is actually more of an argument as to why he isn't a traitor he just made yeah, the wrong yeah. call yeah absolutely it, it's not a matter of a traitor it's just yeah. the reality of the fog of war absolutely and which is literal fog actually in october at yeah, yeah, no, Arch does. <laughs> beatrice let me bring you in yes I have another question um, uh, about Bernadotte, because I, I never sort of really believed that, 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 that being a general was his child time ambitions. I mean, he, he was brought up to become an attorney, a clerk, and he was scheduled to do so when his father died. And uh, oh, he, he became a marshal, became a general, and he was very famous also for his uh, gasconades, for his assaults. But still, uh, as soon as, as he was appointed a crown prince, he'd rather not fight. And um, mm. and for me, that that's, that's a great talent. So I think his diplomacy, his being a clerk, his appearances uh, being very farsighted, outweighed perhaps his, his zeal, his taste for the battle. And it's, it's also mm. very telling that when, when he became um, a king of Sweden, also already when he was a crown prince, up until his death in 1844, he kept the peace, which was very unusual for Sweden. Sweden was in wars ever since. It was uninterrupted wars throughout the 17th and the 18th century and, and before that as well. And then when Bernadotte 
the French general came onto the throne, it was peace because he knew that his people craved peace, that the Swedish people, perhaps he himself as well. Which leads me to my real question, Josh, George, did Bernadotte bring party and dance to Sweden? Uh, <laughs> so perhaps that was, it, that, was, that was something that he really was after, after all. What do you think? Did, did he bring a did he bring a French cultural element into Sweden? Do you <laughs> is that yeah, uh, rather uh, partying rather than fighting? Ah, right. Yes. Well, I don't I don't believe that Bernadotte has the the reputation of Kutuzov uh, as being a party animal. Um, he's actually a much more restrained character. Um, mm. That but but tried to conform to to Swedish court etiquette rather than bringing in all his French friends and things like that and <laughs> having a, a he didn't learn Swedish did he I believe he tried but I don't think he got very far I believe his correspondence is mostly in French <laughs> uh did he bring I I have not heard or, or read that he brought brought the party to Sweden actually I think he just tried to be a very professional Incompetent, mm -hmm. solid, so, solid sort of. At first, first a reformer, and then he sort of switched into a more conservative uh, uh, model when he became king. But uh, although I would be delighted to find out that he did host lavish balls and parties and had a, had a glittering social scene in Stockholm. No, he didn't hang out enough with Lan or Mira. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he had. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's actually an interesting point as well, though, actually. A lot of people say that all the marshals hated him. Actually, people like Ney quite liked him. Are we basically saying he just wasn't a heavy enough drinker to be one of the lads? Is that oh, the I'm sure he was heavy, heavy enough drinker, yeah. He was, he was just... He, <laughs> he was a sergeant in the infantry from Gascony, so I'm pretty yeah. sure he knew how to... <laughs> They called him. Sorry, they called him Sergeant Beljean. Uh -huh, the sergeant with the nice legs, the bell. Yes, they did. Yeah. Yeah. Sergeant Bojangles, yeah. <laughs> basically. <laughs> but you know, I, I, I Bernadotte is always you know among the marshals. You have this several kind of that you you kind of I, I'm drawn to, and Bernadotte is one mm. of them. Not the least because of he of that you know Gascon character. Uh, when he's chosen as an you know, uh, envoy to Vienna, right? That, uh, <laughs> my last choice, um, a man of his uh, mindset. And we know that he... He, well, he didn't he, last he, long, to be fair. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I think, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Rachel, anything you want to add to this? I just think if you're going to look at the question, was Bernadotte a traitor or not, you kind of can't do better than to look at Napoleon's own words because when he was on St Helena most of the marshals came in for a bit of a, a verbal pasting. Um, La and Bessier escaped by virtue of being already dead. Um, he even Davu who arguably was the most ultra loyal the most fanatically devoted to Napoleon um, he accused of not caring about him enough to have lived only France. Nay he'd thrown away everything for Napoleon he said, you know, he, deserved, he deserved what he got because he'd been very stupid. Now, arguably, he probably had a, a greater cause to hate Bernadotte than any of them. But Napoleon's words about Bernadotte was that, you know, he had never made any promise to remain true to me. He became a sort of sweet. I can therefore accuse him of ingratitude, but not of treason. So it's pretty difficult to argue against Napoleon himself. 
wise words wise words um there we go hopefully we well we won't have permanently punctured this this whole myth <laughs> that surrounds Bernadotte but perhaps we'll have encouraged a couple of people to think outside the box when it comes to Bernadotte's reputation I'm going to throw a little bit of a curveball at you to finish things off honorable mentions if you didn't go for yours tonight or any of the others that have been championed this evening and I'm making you do this on the fly, which is deeply unpleasant of me, but hey, this is what I do on the Napoleon Assess. Um, if you couldn't go for any of the ones we've had tonight, who would you go for? I'm going to give you a little bit of time um, because I'm going to go first. And I've been trolling our listeners with the suggestion, you know, Napoleon, surely the man himself, surely he's the most misunderstood individual. Um, my philosophy on this being quite simply that whichever angle you've got on Napoleon, there's probably another angle that if that uh, somebody else would agree would would disagree with you on and, and suggest that actually no you you are misunderstanding the man because you haven't considered X and I'm not I'm not for once I'm not bashing Cot Napoleon tempting though I, I I find it at times to bash those who will not accept that Napoleon was not a perfect individual um, I'm not going to bash them I'm just going to say that of all the people that we debate fiercely in history Napoleon's surely up there and the fact that we keep arguing about him shows that one way or another we just don't understand the guy because whichever perspective you have you're probably not quite getting to inverted commas historical truth in as much as there ever is historical truth so that that's my pitch Napoleon misunderstood because we just cannot agree and there are so many angles to the guy and his complexity that it's almost impossible to understand him particularly with all the layers of myth making that are, have happened over the years i'm not Alex. sure zach frankly um because i'm sure um on uh, you know i started right in in the last book i, I wrote i have this preface where i discuss my views of napoleon and in it i i are i say that like many of us i was drawn to napoleon by his myth by, by the legend, it's, it's like a siren, right? It, it draws us in, it's irresistible. Uh, a boy from a poor family, right? On the obscure periphery of the empire rises to rule the Europe. I mean, this is as good as it gets in that sense. From, um, but there is certain stage in your kind of evaluation of history and your growth as a, not as a scholar, I'm not even talking about it, but in your growth as a, as a rational thinker that you have to then put some grain of salt on all of this. And I think vast majority of people I've interacted have done this. And that's where I, you know, I take an issue with your point, Zach, is that I think we all agree that he's a complex figure, that there are a lot of sides to him, and we agree that he has done a lot of bad things and quite a few good things. So it's, it's, it's the irrational part of accepting him as something that he's not, that, that bothers me. That's irrational. Uh, because rationally, you approach it, you, I think you can understand it. But to answer your question, to, for me, uh, maybe we will do part two of this episode. And uh, I would go with Talleyrand. Because same things that we've talked about Napoleon can be said about Talleyrand. Uh, and uh, you can start with him being shit in silk stockings, and then you can end with him being a master diplomat uh, who single-handedly rescues French fortunes in the Congress of Vienna. And the remarkable thing would be that he was both. 
<laughs> I'm, I'm very tempted to come back and, and continue that discussion about the Napoleon thing, not least because what about sort of the Charles Esdales of this world who put <laughs> rather a lot of salt um, on, on that kind of, that, never mind a grain of salt, you know, you're, you're talking uh, a gritting lorries. An iceberg. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> indeed. Um, in, into that, that equation. But um, it's, it's one of those discussions that could go around all night. Um, so as you say, perhaps, perhaps there needs to be a part three and four and and 27 on on misunderstood figures from this period. Beatrice, let me come to you. Yes, I'm, I'm thinking very hard, Zach. Um, I, I, I would like to stick to my choice of um, um, bringing women to the fore and then would bring in Wilhelmina um, um, of Prussia, the wife of uh, the stadtholder William V and the mother and the, again a kingmaker of William I. But I was also doubting and caught between Castlereagh, either Castlereagh, who was also uh, ridiculed and lamented and, uh, by, by, by Byron and others um, in, in the UK, or Tsar Alexander, who in turn was ridiculed by Castlereagh and Wellington. And perhaps I stick for the second, the second part of the series to Tsar Alexander, because he was already considered a riddle in his time. He was dismissed by Wellington and by Metternich and by Casseret as being uh, a, a mystic and perhaps even an idiot. Uh, his only alliance was mocked with and they really didn't understand him. And he sort of sacrificed his energy, his many years of his life in, in being in, in Europe, in Western Europe, in Paris. Uh, he was there and he stayed there, he stayed put there until Napoleon was really vanquished. And then he was the great recon reconciliator and well, could say that he was better at it the first time in 1814 and 1815, but still he was one who tried to keep the countries of Europe uh, together in a kind of this collective security architecture that then came into being after 1815. And he was seminal to that. And only afterwards he made this nasty turn to being a more reactionary, as did Wellington, as did Benedict, as did so many of these men. But in 1815, I think it was very much misunderstood. And, and perhaps Napoleon was the only one who really understood him in 86, uh, 87. He saw Alexander as his great partner and his great ally, and he was completely um, at a loss when Tsar Alexander didn't return his love. So that's something that you could also ponder. Oh, that's a that's a, a question that you could you could argue for a long time. I, I see Alex poised like he wants to respond. Alex, oh, no, 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 it, no, no, absolutely. Beatrice is the last point where Alexander didn't return the love. Reminds me of Napoleon's letter to Josephine. Of all the people that he wrote, <laughs> he wrote to Josephine in after the meeting at, at Tilsit, and he says, "I'm enamored with Alexander, and if he were a if he were a woman, I would have made him my mistress." <laughs> <laughs> Or the letter to write to your wife. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but then there are many curious ones, some of which I don't entirely believe are true. Um, the love letters themselves are they they're, they're fascinating reading. A psychologist would have a field day with them. Um, Josh, take save us, take us away from Napoleon's love letters and the complexities within them. Who who would you say is your misunderstood runner-up, if you will? Oh, there are there are, there are so many that to be chosen to be chosen from. Um, I mean, it, it, in trying to come up with a, a figure to do tonight, I had considered Talleyrand, 
to begin with, Alex. Because <laughs> um, he is, is legitimately fascinating. Um, and of course, Napoleon said, you know, basically I should have hanged him uh, and, uh, and Fouquet. But uh, as well, um, I, I, I told you, I thought I, I was pondering uh, Manuel Godoy, the, the premier of Spain, uh, who is undoubtedly, partly because he's so little known and partly because he is basically just a figure of fun, uh, a joke, basically. Uh, I think there is more to him. But again, you could go with like Madame de Stael and, and, and um, figures like that, people who, who have piercing insights into the great figures of the time. And I, I, I considered Wellington in a way, except that people already have challenged the misconceptions about Wellington enough that he does not necessarily need to be uh, challenged except maybe in his political his political life and I, I, I do not feel equal to the task of, of, of meeting that. Um, so yes, it, I'm very much a question mark as to, as to who I might bring for part two if there is such a part two, but also, uh, and also, I mean, um, Barclay de Tony as well uh, is also partly due to Tolstoy, partly due to the, the politics of the Russian high command in 1812 is a, is a very misunderstood figure um, who has been rehabilitated to some degree up to this point, but is a, would again be in the running. I'm going to be really facetious before we go to Rachel for the final word and say as a, a second misunderstood individual, what about the, the British rank and file on the basis that everybody <laughs> watched the Sharp series and thinks that everything they see in there is absolute fact. And so therefore by extension, they don't understand the reality of what it's like to be a ranker in the British army during this period. But you mean the scum of the earth? Now, now, <laughs> This is the Christmas season. Goodwill to all men and all that. <laughs> Rachel, wrap things up for us. Um, I thought Castle Day was a brilliant suggestion, but I guess I'd be inclined, I'll follow in Beatrice's footsteps and go for uh, a female figure. I'd be inclined to say Josephine, um, because a lot of the way that she's portrayed, you know, the not tonight Josephine, that she was a sort of nymphomaniac who was enormously profligate, and she certainly could spend wildly enormous amounts of money, but she was a very shrewd oper operator. She was, no, she was very insightful, you. I think potentially maybe where, where her taunts got a lot of it from. She she could read people certainly a lot better than Napoleon could. Napoleon was incredibly charismatic and he was very good at talking people around to his own way of thinking, but not necessarily good at understanding other people, uh, empathizing, understanding how to, to interact, how to play nicely with others really. Um, and when he, when he first came on the scene, he was this very sort of gauche, young Corsican who rubbed people up the wrong way and couldn't really, he didn't have any interpersonal skills and he couldn't hold a conversation. And Josephine kind of molded him and made him appropriate for polite society and sort of introduced him to the right people and almost kind of laid the path for his, for his rise in a way. And I think she doesn't maybe get enough credit as she deserves for being more than just his wife. What a fantastic suggestion. Um, and you're getting sort of nods of approval around the room. Absolutely. Um, so I've got another, I don't know, about 20 episodes that I now need to go and plan off the back of this. 
Thank you all so much for your time this evening, folks. Um, I don't even know what the runtime on this is, but it's gone on to something like two hours. I guess the point of Christmas specials is that they have to be special, right? And boy, did you guys make this special. So Alex, Beatrice, Josh, Rachel, thank you all so much for your time. Very Merry Christmas. And I'll look forward to seeing you again very, very soon. Thank you. Thank you, Zach. Thank you. Merry Christmas. Hello again, folks. You know what's coming. Do me a favour. It's the Christmas season. Goodwill to all mankind and all that. Give this post a like. Go to Apple Podcasts and leave a review if you've been enjoying the content over the last year. If you think somebody else might be interested, then let them know about it. All those things, the sharing, the likes, the retweets, um, the reviews, it's all contributed to what is starting to become a parabolic increase in the popularity of the Napoleon Assist. Um, a year ago, I was sat here kind of feeling massively chuffed about something like 24,000 downloads in nine months. The show is now on something like 92,000. I've lost count of the number of episodes. The listenership is exceeding 1,000 per episode. The, the, the figures are just crazy. And I want to take a moment to thank every single one of you who has tuned in all of this time. It's been going on, what, 21 months, I think, now? And the fact that I've got people still coming back for more, still engaging, still loving this content, means an incredible amount. It's hugely humbling to be doing this out of a tiny little room and be beaming it across the world to something like 60 countries. Actually, it might be more than that. Anyway, to a lot of countries around the world. Wherever you are in the world, thank you for tuning in. And please keep tuning in in the new year. You know how this show works. It is able to keep going thanks to the generosity of my Patreon supporters. If you are interested in joining them, the tiers start from £1 a month. There are all kinds of perks from shout-outs to voting rights and the ability to request content and one-to-one chats with me. You get access to a Discord server. So there's all kinds of stuff that you can kind of benefit from if you're interested in taking part. A shout-out as ever to my Emperor-level patrons, Mark Stoos and JC Kaiser. My Commander patrons, Ger Brown, Jane Davis, Marcus Cribb, Matt Bone, Bob Burnham and Stephen Gillam. And my mentioned in Dispatches patrons, Alexandra Leon, Alistair Campbell-Greve, Andy Meakin, Beatrice de Graff, Brendan Teeling, Colin Fieldhouse, Ed Koss, an anonymous Canadian, Gareth Copeland, Jeff Maple, Hugh Brennan, James Bevan, Jim Deary, Jim Getz, John Haynes, Josh Keeney, Lucy Tatner, Lynn Dawson, Mark Dewhurst, Rob Griffith, Roy Muir, Ross Flowers, Ryan Diamond, and Stephen Coulson. So come the new year, as you know, the Napoleon Assist will finally, as I've been threatening so often, be going three times a month. So there'll be lots for you to look forward to. I'm also very conscious that This time last year, as I was checking the download stats, I noticed that some folks were listening to me even on Christmas Day. If you are one of those people, then seriously, thank you for giving up some time on your Christmas Day to tune in to little old me. Um, That means all of my listener engagement obviously means a huge amount, but for folks to want to spend that particularly special day with me means a huge amount. So thank you wherever you are, whenever you're listening to this. Just do me a little favour, whether it's Christmas or not. 
just pause this podcast for a moment. Just literally, just right now, hit the pause button and go find somebody you care about and tell them how much they mean to you. Because, you know, life's too short and it's uh, at the end of a year, it's the time to just sort of reflect and make sure that you're getting as much as you possibly can out of life. So, folks, have a very, very Merry Christmas. Thank you for sticking with me all of this time and I will see you again very soon. That should be it for this year. Or is it? Because, hey, it's the Christmas season and this is meant to be the time for miracles. So on that little teaser, I will leave you. I'm Zach White. This has been The Napoleonicist. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well. Stay safe. Have a very, very Merry Christmas. And as always, thank you for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.